Well, hopefully you've found your way in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you speak to our hearts now through it, Uh, Father, and we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. The end of 2019, a slew of articles were being released by different Christian publications indicating that they felt due to the severe decline in numbers of people in America uh, attending church regularly, uh, that the church was in a crisis mode and needed to reinvent itself to once again remain relevant within our current society and culture. As I began to read those articles, I discovered that their manner of remaining relevant was often uh, found by compromise. And to reinvent themselves, they would further that compromise and begin to dismiss areas of Christianity that the society found objectionable. And in some cases, they went as far as to really remove the gospel altogether. Of course, leaving the church then impotent and, of course, of no effect upon our culture here in America. As I began to pray about it, I felt that this would be a suitable time to once again remind our church of the principles in which it was founded on, and why I believe that even though we find them here in Acts chapter 2, and they were recorded and given to us 2,000 years ago, they are still as relevant today as they were when they were first given. Concluding then that the church doesn't need to reinvent itself to remain relevant in our culture, I believe our church needs to rediscover the truths of the scriptures in which God has commanded his church to be built upon. And many of those commands are found in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, of course, is not a complete or uh, exhaustive study of the church, which is called ecclesiology. Of course, that's found throughout the course of the New Testament. However, though, the general principles that we built this church upon are found in Acts chapter 2, and they begin with the very first verse in chapter 1, as they waited upon the Holy Spirit. And in our first session together, we indicated the necessity of being a Spirit-led church and what that means and what that looks like. Secondly, we saw then evangelism take place where individuals interacted with the world, engaged the world within the questions that the world was asking, and used it as a springboard to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we showed and demonstrated how that was meant to be exercised and fulfilled within the church. And as a result of the evangelism of Peter here in Acts chapter 2, 
the number of disciples grew uh, uh, incredibly from 120 to 3,000. And as a result, they now were faced with what to do with these newfound Christians next. And Luke records for us in a very simplistic but also a very uh, profound manner how they occupied their time and what they did as a group of newly found believers. In verse 42, we find four elements of their gathering. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And notice the word that is preceding all four, and that is devoted themselves. They made these things a high priority. They were intentional about these things. They purposed these things. These were things that were not going to be um, missed due to distractions that the world would have to offer. It was something that they were going to see through. And last week, we looked at the apostles' teaching. And we saw how the apostles began to reiterate all of the teaching that Jesus had given them. And how they began to expound on it as the Holy Spirit gave them revelation. It was a unique time in the church's history and existence. And that then led to the second element, which we will look at this morning, and that is fellowship. But before we look at fellowship, let me take a moment to share with you a manner in which the church here in America has reinvented itself to, make, to remain what they believe is uh, a current relevancy within our society. When these articles began to come out, also accompanied with these articles, were different churches across America who reinvented themselves in what they believed was some unique and new fashion to allow them to be, uh, have more of an impact within a society that has pretty much, in most regards, written church off. And this new movement of church is actually called the Bar Church, B-A-R, where church is being hosted and uh, uh, you know, attended within different local bars in the community. On the West Coast, they're called the Bar Church. In the East Coast, they're called the Pub Church. And when they... they uh, advertise themselves. They say, come and worship with us, have a beer, have some food, and uh, come and, you know, uh, feel that God loves you too, or, and things like that. You can read it online for yourself. So one individual began to explore the bar church to see if it was truly as effective as they said it was. And as this pastor was evaluating the bar church, here is what he discovered. He says their material will read something like this. Welcome to the pub church. We are a church in a pub, and the Spirit is with us. Yeah, but what Spirit? In this place, feel free to move about. Help yourself to food and drink, and express yourself openly. We come together with a variety of thoughts, stories, talents, hopes, and hurts, All we bring is welcomed. We pray that in the coming together with all of our differences, 
and with the Spirit, we participate in a new divine reality. For this is a sacred space, he says. Supporters of this venue for worship argue that it is an unconventional way of doing church, but it is also in response to the decline of the institutional religion in favor of a new kind of church experience. It draws people who would never attend a traditional church, and it's less judgmental, they say. It's devoid of religiosity and focuses on relationship. A bar is a place, they believe, that one would likely find Jesus if he were here today. And the writer goes on, and I want to read this paragraph, if I may, because I think it's important for our discussion this morning. He says, I cannot deny the scripture tell us that Jesus was found amongst the sinners and associating with them in places commonly rejected. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that today. Because I believe that Jesus doing that had a much more elegant purpose than simply justifying having a church in a bar. I cannot deny that some churches have been atrociously, atrociously, excuse me, unwelcoming, self-righteous, pretentious, hypocritical, and even abusive. Nor can I deny that God's Spirit can do His work in the most unbecoming sites and situations. But for me, a partnership between a place that celebrates alcohol and the holy work of God is an unequally yoked and therefore ultimately does more harm than good to both the sinner and the saint. Well, I'm glad he realizes that because I agree with him. But this is just one example of individuals feeling the necessity that we need to do church in a different way. Another article recorded that even in the sermon that the man gives, he will often use vulgarity to help communicate his points. One man interviewed who attends this type of church setting was a fireman, and this pastor interviewed him to see if it was really producing the fruit that they were hoping it would, And the fireman says, I've been coming for a while now, and as long as they talk about stories and they tell funny jokes and and people interact, I'm good, but as soon as you bring up the Bible and God, I'm out. So it's not having the impact that some people say that it is having. Today, I believe that rediscovering the principles that God gave us 2,000 years ago for the church and allowing them to thrive in the context of 2020, will rejuvenate the church quicker and faster than any kind of reinvention such as creating a bar church. I believe that you and I need to have an unwavering belief that God's scripture is all sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. And therefore, if we believe that, then we should practice that. Now, when it comes to the apostles' teaching, of course, we gave examples that that today is found in the Word of God, the Bible that you have within your hand. However, though, notice that there are three further elements to their gathering. The second of those three are found in fellowship. And it's this fellowship that I want to explore this morning, because I believe that through recent um, uh, finds of texts that were written in that area 
in that time, I should say, and reflected upon the arrival of the new church, we get a glorious depth to the understanding of this word that was being used that we translate fellowship today, when in the Greek we know it as the word koinonia, I'm sure you've heard that word possibly before, which means, of course, defined simply as a oneness. However, though, let us notice, if you will, the reaction of people who participated in these four practices. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, prayers. The very next thing that Luke records for us is that awe came upon all of them. Lastly, he then indicates that the people in Jerusalem looked upon this gathering in favor. History now tells us that as these newfound Christians gathered, there was something about their assembly that was unique. And in that culture was found to be very attractive. And I believe that what we have learned now from historical evidence shows us that this oneness was was far more complex than we give it understanding to or that we give it credit for. It is this complexity and this depth that I want to explore with you today because I may be introducing new concepts of fellowship that you had not considered before. I believe that this word fellowship is like many words in the Bible, especially paralleled the word agape, which we simply translate as love in the English language. But the word koinonia, I believe, comes alive when you see it in its historical setting. I believe that there was something so unique about the gathering of these newfound Christians that the world looked upon it and those who were in it were stunned with awe at what was transpiring before them. To help us understand this word koinonia in its historical understanding, let us understand that like the word agape, Christians gave it new meaning. The word agape was used in that culture very rarely. It was to indicate a selfless type of love. And we see that from extra-biblical writings, but of course also, more importantly, the New Testament. But Jesus gave complete uh, revision to that word by the manner in which he lived and by the manner in which Paul uh, describes Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13. And though many will look at 1 Corinthians 13 and say this is just a mere definition of the word agape, I would argue that Paul is not necessarily putting forth a, a definition, but a description of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to take a look at that, and see that for yourself, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13 in every place that it says love, insert the word God. And you're going to find a very, very strong consistency between the character in which it describes and the definition of the word agape. Paul was explaining and defining the word agape by the manner in which Jesus lived. Of course, 1 John says that God is love. And this type of love originated with God. 
Now, the word koinonia was also a word used at that time, and it was used in a far greater sense than the word agape was. The word koinonia could be used to describe any type of a group or association, any kind of participation in a society or in a group. And these groups were plentiful throughout Judaism. And there was a unique bond amongst the members of these groups that first and foremost indicated that they were part of the group, that these bonds indicated, and secondly, that others were not part of the group. And there was an exclusion. But then the Christians began to use the same word, koinonia. However, though, unlike the other secular associations described by the same word, their use of the word and their group seemed to be incredibly attractive to the people around them. And so let me take you through a little bit of a uh, historical understanding of the word agape, I'm sorry, the word koinonia, to help you understand this type of fellowship. And I believe that as you read the Gospels, you will find that there were events in the life of Jesus that contributed to the allowing of this newly formed fellowship, including the one that we read about this morning, where Jesus ate with sinners in places that normal rabbis would never go. We have to understand Judaism We need to understand that period of time a little bit more thoroughly to understand how miraculous and unique this newly found fellowship actually was. This newly found fellowship was not based upon a human idea or a material possession or even a social standing, as many of the secular associations were established. This idea was established based on the person of Jesus Christ. They saw this fellowship as a fulfillment of all that he began to do and to teach. Remember when Luke wrote to Theophilus in Acts chapter 1, he says, I'm continuing now my second volume to you, to show you all the things that Jesus, then the, uh, more importantly, I'm sorry, more distinguishedly, the apostles did after the ascension of Jesus. And so Luke saw this as a natural development of everything that Jesus started. And I believe that historically it indicates to us that this fellowship amongst these people was so unique to that culture it became attractive, and it became a witness in and of itself. Now, throughout the life of Jesus, he made some incredible statements. All who come to me are welcomed at my Father's table. A centurion came to him and asked for the healing of his servant, and Jesus granted it to him. Jesus dealt with the poor as much as he dealt with the rich. Jesus dealt with the religious leaders as much as he did those who were so far from God that he had to go where they were because they were so outcast from the society that he needed to go to them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that the authority of his disciples would have been challenged by the religious leaders because they were found to be uneducated and untrained men. 
And yet, he needed to substantiate this newly found thing called the church that was going to be made up not of just one race, not of just one gender, not of just one social class, not of just one economic class, but all who would come to him. And these individuals needed to get beyond the social and uh, demographic divisions that that society put in place if they were truly going to love each other as Jesus Christ loved the church. If they were going to truly love one another as Jesus Christ had loved them. They had to get past all of these things. And I argue that the gospel did just that. When people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, individuals were no longer identified by whatever demographic uh, classification that society has placed upon them, but were seen now as brothers and sisters in the Lord, were they not? So the very first element of this newly found fellowship had to be the elimination of those social divisions. Rich people interacting with poor people, which just didn't naturally happen. Those who were religious leaders in Judaism, possibly Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, now identifying themselves with individuals like Matthew the tax collector, or Mary who was a prostitute, and others. Now, you have to understand, these were huge huge social divides. You just didn't do this. You didn't cross those lines. And don't we have examples of that in the Gospels? Jesus, how could you ever eat with them? You're going to be defiled, Lord. Or as Jesus was invited into the house of the Pharisees and the woman came and, you know, cleansed his feet with her hair and with her tears. She said, you know what kind of person she is, Lord. Don't allow her to touch you in such a way. Jesus knew that if the Gospel was going to be effective, And all who were going to come to him were going to be welcomed. And if individuals were to truly love each other as Christ has loved them, these social divisions had to be eliminated. And they were. We read now in historical writings that the observation of this newly found church was seen in just a way that people who were not necessarily ever going to interact with one another in the society in general were now coming together willfully, willingly, excuse me. And something unique began to happen, didn't it? Sitting under the teaching of the apostles, who we have just stated was a reiteration of the teachings of Jesus, This fellowship allowed for the fulfillment of that teaching. Let me give you an example. In our text this morning, we've discovered that they already acted upon one of the elements of that teaching. Let us hypothetically for a moment state that the apostles would teach themselves, which is very probable. We know that we, Peter used to teach, James used to teach there. And we know John used to teach there. And let's say, if I may, for argument's sake, and I think I can make a a pretty good case for this, 
that John was teaching principles that were eventually going to be found in his first epistle, 1 John. And say they have these newly formed group of Christians, and I'm not talking about just at this moment, but throughout the course of the progression of the growth of the church there in Jerusalem, that John would teach, he who sees his brother in need and has the means to fulfill it and does not. What kind of love is that? He, of course, writes that in his own epistle. Well, what kind of evidence do you have for that, Eric? Look with me, if you will, in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I believe that this was a unique experience. This is something that just didn't happen. This was not a common occurrence in Judaism. In fact, we know from history that it tells us that the Jewish people were generous. And they, however, though, their generosity was usually gauged by their wealth. They were giving from their riches in many cases. Let me bring to your attention a young man who came to Jesus and asked the question, what may, I have, what may I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say to him? Go and sell all that you have and give it to who? The poor. These individuals didn't have to be prompted in that way, did they? The teaching went forward, and because the social divides had been eliminated it were possible that a rich man was sitting next to a poor person who had nothing and that rich man now trying to be obedient to the teaching of the word of God says, I've got so much and my brother here, not poor person anymore, right? Now, let us understand. This is huge for our understanding and I hope this will help you see this in the gospels and so forth. Remember, this is key crucial to this. This rich man is now looking at this newly found Christian as a brother. Two males, okay? But that wasn't the case before. In Judaism, it is clear that the, covenant, the covenantal agreement that God gave through Moses to the nation of Israel found in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 that stated that if the nation of Israel was obedient, God would bless them in this way. If the nation of Israel was not obedient, God would curse them in this way, right? I believe that there is ample evidence in the New Testament Gospels to show us that that, that idea was personalized, individualized. Where individuals who were rich, the society considered blessed by God and right with God, right? Right? And the people who were poor, they must have done something to warrant God's curse upon them, and therefore a distance was kept between the rich and the poor. Well, how do you know that? Well, let me give you some examples. When the rich young man who Jesus asked to go and sell all that he had and give it to the poor, when he couldn't do that, and when he couldn't do that, now there's more to that story where they go through the law and he believes that he has kept it all and so forth. And then Jesus concludes with this. Please notice what the disciples say next. It is huge. If he can't be saved, then who can be saved? 
Why were they saying that? Because the social understanding of the rich were they were blessed by God, favored by God, and it was manifested through their material blessings. A poor person must have done something. One who was uh, physically uh, limited in some way, blind or, or lame. What was the first conclusion the society came to concerning them? You must have sinned in some way to warrant such a, such a disease or such an affliction. Right? This is why Jesus says, is it easier for me to say, stand up and walk or your sins are forgiven? You see how the picture is becoming much bigger now as we paint it more thoroughly? So this man who would once had looked at this poor person as somebody who is possibly cursed by God now knows that through Jesus Christ, that is not the case. And he's not simply a poor person, but now he is his brother. And I can't enjoy all the material blessings that I have and see my brother have nothing and I'm going to sell what I can and give it to him. Fellowship. Fellowship allowed for the destruction of those social barriers that would have hindered the word of God to be obeyed. Even in the construction of the temple itself, Separation was always a part of the worship of God. Did you know that? From the very Holy of Holies itself, with the curtain that's divided the Holy of Holies from the holy place that only the high priest could go into, even once you, once you get outside of that area, even the courtyards were divided. You had the Jewish men in one, the Jewish women in the other, and then, of course, you had the court of the Gentiles behind you. It's interesting, if you're like, uh, as uh, Paul Blart from Mall Cop would say, a fun fact for you. Um, I don't know where I get these illustrations from, just pray for me. Um, fun fact for you Do you know that when Jesus cleansed the temple, of the solicitation of money and the fair, unfair exchanges, and we're going to see this as we continue in Luke shortly, that all of that took place in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And the witness that the Gentiles had of Judaism was corruption, and that's why he did what he did. Very interesting, isn't it? So, now all of a sudden, through the person of Jesus Christ, All who come to him are welcomed at his Father's table. It doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, what social class you are in, economic class, etc. You're all welcome. And now you all become brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as seeing a person through those eyes, how can one not be compelled to, to love them as Christ has loved you. And if I have more and my brother has nothing, shall I not give to him? Shall I not give to her? Shall I not help in some way? It doesn't surprise me that we read in verse 43 that awe came upon every soul. Can you imagine how unique this was? How extraordinary it was? Wow, they really love each other. They're just not saying it. They're demonstrating it by crossing boundaries that had been established by the society that no one ever crossed before except 
Who? Jesus. Isn't that awesome? This is fellowship. It destroys those things that would separate, makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, brings us into a, excuse me, a unique unity to allow us to be obedient to what God has said for us. And notice how Paul expounds upon this. And he says, when the body rejoices, rejoice. When the body mourns, mourns with it. Because you're one. Koinonia, oneness. Now we have a further, richer, dynamic uh, 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 perspective of what that means. Nobody had to twist their arm. Nobody had to guilt them into giving. The apostles didn't get up in there. How dare you, rich people, not provide? They just did it because they loved one another. They loved one another to this degree. This is fellowship. This is what is meant by it. When we come together on Sundays and on Wednesdays, think about the barriers that have been destroyed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ to allow us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. One way or another, we don't see that as much here in the United States of America as we do around the world. There are still countries around the world that some people walk like ghosts through the society because they're considered untouchables. Let us understand that. Jesus says, I love him, so you love him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read how elegant this is and how incredible this is and what a witness this is, I cannot help but to think how cheapened Jesus' actions are recounted in justifying a church in a bar. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, I, when I was working in the business world, I went to business functions where alcohol was served and, and I saw it as an opportunity to witness to my coworkers, to share Christ with them. I saw it as an opportunity to go out with them and hear them and listen to their questions. And sure enough, throughout the course of the evening, someone would always come up to me. When I was a manager and I had uh, several dozen people working underneath me, I developed a relationship with my workers that they knew that during company time, we focused on the business at hand. But at lunch, they could come to my door at any time. I would often buy them Bibles. I would often give Bibles to them after work. I'd meet for them for dinner and I would pay. Yeah, I would pay. See, God's worked in my life now. To listen to them. I'll never forget one time having the opportunity. One of the gentlemen in our warehouse, a young man, was a newly married young man and his wife was pregnant, eight months pregnant when we hired him. And shortly after hiring him, he, his wife developed complications in the pregnancy and and was rushed to the hospital, and he felt so nervous about calling in because he had just started the job. He was a great young man. I actually recruited him from another company. Um, he texted me, and he was so apologetic, and so, I'm, I'm sorry, he, 
he, we didn't have text back then, but he um, emailed me and told me what had happened and told me where his wife was. And I didn't email him back, but I drove to the hospital instead. And I sat with him. And what a witness that can be. What a witness that can be. This is what fellowship does. It breaks down the barriers in and through the person of Jesus Christ and it allows for a unity to be developed as we now see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, therefore commanded to love each other as Jesus Christ loved the church and therefore fulfilling and helping one another and assisting one another, knowing that your church family will be there for you in your times of need. And when things go difficult. And I believe that this is why we read in verse 47. Let's back up to verse 46. And we're going to go over these verses more as time goes on. And day by day, they were attending the temple together breaking in bread. Now it's interesting, one historical writer says that when they did meet in the temple, they met in what's called the area of, it was a public area where everybody could go. So instead of going only to where the Jewish men would go, or instead of going only where the women or the Gentiles would go, they went to this public area of the temple where everybody was welcome. What a statement in and of that was. And so as they gathered in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... And this is where I believe, as we will gather next week to talk about this breaking of bread, I believe that it was more than just taking communion together, and I'll explain why next week. But that was definitely part of it. However, though, they came together breaking of bread in what? What does it say? Their homes. Their homes. Now think about that for a minute. A society that would be mutually exclusive of individuals who were not just like them. Now they're attending one another's homes. Where did Jesus go to reach those people that no one else would reach? To their where? Homes. Do you see how much more beautiful this is than just justifying a bar in a church? I'm sorry, a church in a bar. Well, there are bars and churches now. There's a church in the area that has a ministry called Bros and Brews. Um, Notice what it says next. They met in each other's homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. They're praising God, having what? Favor with all the people. Is that the way it is today in our society? No. Now, trust me, I understand completely that doctrines of the Bible today are not popular in our society. Doctrines concerning genders only being male and female, doctors, uh, doctrines considering that there's only one way to heaven are completely uh, rejected by our society, doctrines that say that men should be with women and women should be with men are also challenged greatly by our society. And this is a part of the reason that we are being persecuted. But I, I'm going to say to you openly I think the church in America has given the secular world a lot of ammunition, haven't we? Because we haven't behaved properly. We've ministered 
hypocritically. We've said one thing from the pulpit and lived lives that were completely the opposite of it. And I believe that Luke records this for us in the manner in which he does to show us and to demonstrate that as they listened to the apostles' doctrine and as they uh, fellowshiped with one another and as they broke bread with one another and as they prayed with one another, something happened. They lived out their Christian faith. It was a reality within their life. And they did things contrary to secular understanding because of their newfound understanding in Christ. They were separated from the world in a sanctification way, but yet were still approachable. That's interesting because there was a man in the Bible that was a lot like that. And there was uh, the whole book, the Bible is about him. I think I read this somewhere that you know, uh, every, he, everybody can approach him and he loved everybody, and, uh, but he was completely holy. Have you read the same thing? His name was Jesus. Yeah. Christianity is an outworking of the reality of Jesus Christ. And I believe their fellowship demonstrated that. There are four points I want to leave you with this morning that I believe are crucial for us to cultivate healthy fellowship within our church. Many had aspects of this type of fellowship years ago within the family structure. If you grew up in the 20s or 30s or 40s and even the 50s, Families were so tight-knit together. You know, they would celebrate every holiday, every birthday, every, every opportunity they could to get together, Sundays and after church. Families would often offer this type of environment in some way or shape or form. We've lost that, haven't we? Today, we have cultivated such a self-centered society that this type of fellowship is uh, almost impossible to find in a secular setting. I believe that we've been divided even further by the implications and the implementation of social media within our society. You're going to read many articles written in 2020 about screen time and about the impact of social media upon the culture. Please read them. I think you're going to be shocked to discover what they write. Maybe, maybe not shocked. And unfortunately... Demographics still today segregate us, rich from poor, race, uh, and so forth. And unfortunately, many who come to a situation where they gather together with people are simply looking to see how they may benefit from the relationship rather than being a blessing to others. So my first point that we must be is like the early church, we must be intentional about our fellowship. As they devoted themselves, so shall we devote ourselves. Understand that coming to church is more than just singing songs and just showing up through the door so the pastor sees that you are there. It is by interacting with one another that is also valuable, invaluable to your Christian life on a weekly basis. We must be intentional, persistent, devoted to, our fellowship with one another. 
Number two, I believe we have to have a full-purposed understanding of what fellowship means. And we talked about that today, the destroying of hindrances between people and the building up of the ability to share and to fulfill the teachings of Jesus Christ with one another. I believe we spoke on that quite in length this morning. Number three may be surprising to you, but I really believe that a healthy church environment will be multi-generational. Multi-generational. There's been a lot of emphasis on multiple cultures in one particular church. But I believe that we also must uh, emphasize multi-generational. Some of the people that had the greatest impact in my life at 16 years old when I came to Saving Faith in Christ were, were older people who saw me and cared enough about me to kind of take me underneath their wings. And it's interesting today because I was just talking to some folks this week and one of the individuals that was key in my personal life and my personal discipleship was a a blessed lady named Julia Rhodes. Now you may not know her by that name, but you know her daughter. Her daughter's Barb Alther. And Julia, when I came into the church, when she saw me walking down the middle of the church aisle, she would always grab my wrist and pull me over and say, how you doing? Can I pray for you? What are you doing after church? She always was caring about me. And I knew that if I had asked her to pray for something, she was going to pray for it. And I believe that part, part of my Christian discipleship is well to do with those people who took that time. I believe it should be multi-generational. I am getting more and more concerned that we are segregating ourselves so thoroughly that we're losing the wisdom of those who are older than we. I still get together with pastors, I did on Thursday, who are older than I am, to listen to their wisdom. I meet with my pastor once a week. He feels it necessary due to the liability that I pose to him. No. Um, But I do because it's invaluable. It's invaluable to me. And lastly, let us understand that our fellowship is due to the person of Jesus Christ and that he went through such an extensive intense, horrific crucifixion to allow for our fellowship with one another. This is the beauty of the gospel. And I don't want to do anything to diminish all that Christ has provided for us in and through the sacrifice in which he made for us. Fellowship. The breaking down of those things that divide us and the bringing us together that we may be obedient and discover that the person next to me is my brother or sister in Christ. And in this family, no family member is ever left behind.